I'm Dimitri Gatsunas, and this is These Days. From time to time on this podcast, we'll take up an icon and profile that person. These are typically people who have had great meaning to me in our larger world of ideas. Today's icon was hugely impactful on me in my teens and well beyond. We return with that profile in just a moment. embarrassed to say it, but sometime in my teens, I developed a strange habit around non-fiction books in which I'd pick one up, go straight to the index, and search out only one name, Bob Dylan. At the time, he was all that mattered. I'd come to his music as a teen in the late 80s when CDs took hold, and I listened to him alone in my room. He was, sometimes with the help of LSD, a portal to all that I felt on a very primal level. The music of Dylan felt sacred in this way, not just something I could understand, but something I was meant to understand. It's now 30 years later, and I find myself turning again to Bob Dylan. How does he view all of this? How long do we still have him for? How will he be eulogized? I fear I'll rue the day of his passing. I imagine a takeover, a mass media memorializing that feels delusional in how it magnifies rather than edifies. It's just not a place I want to be. So I'm here, wanting to understand my own relationship to him before others tell me what my relationship should be. After all, Dylan deserves more, so much more, at least if I can help it. See, my journey vis-a-vis Dylan is not simply an obsessive one, not simply a love affair. It's a love story, and like any true love story, it's complicated. Like I said, I found him in my teens. There's a certain horror to adolescence, there was to mine. We're moving into the world at large, and with our new sense of self is also the shock that the world, life, is so much bigger than we are. We have two sides. One side, if we're lucky, if we got some love growing up, is reassured by the past, wants to cocoon in it with the bonds of family. But the other side... Also, if we're lucky, gestures with a giant fuck you to all of that. It looks outward, to the world beyond. That world is filled with possibility, and also the capacity to kill us. Dylan's 1965 classic, Like a Rolling Stone, captures this as well as any song before or since. To quote, You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging your next meal. How does it feel, how does it feel to be without a home, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? 
The song caused me to question my own suffering, whether I'd suffered enough or in the right way. I was surprised that in some ways I had, but it also caused me to question whether I had the courage to simply listen. You know, did I have sufficient reverence for the human experience, for the suffering of others that permeated this larger world? Did I understand that history is largely a story of suffering, that our moment that we call our lifetime is but only a blip, but what's universal, what connects us to others is that suffering, provided we don't ignore it. Dylan taught me to relate to this. His soul, like Whitman's in this way, truly did contain multitudes. And so, I listened. But if Like a Rolling Stone spoke to me about a world out there and its dangers, a shattering of innocence, I found myself moving on to a crisis of a different sort. Yes, the world can kill us. But I soon realized if things became too much, I could kill myself. Through Dylan, I came to understand that my greater dangers were internal. The isolation, all these impulses firing, the thoughts, the torture of them. It felt horrific, hopeless. But once again, Dylan spoke to my psychic crisis. This is from his early poem, Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, performed at New York City's Town Hall in 1963. And there's something on your mind you want to be saying that somebody someplace ought to be hearing, but it's trapped on your tongue and sealed in your head, and it bothers you badly when you're laying in bed. No matter how you try, you just can't say it, and you're scared to your soul, you just might forget it, and your eyes get swimmy from the tears in your head, and your pillows of feathers turn to blankets of lead, and the lion's mouth opens and you're staring at his teeth, and his jaws start closing with you underneath. Dylan here, equal parts Guthrie, Kerouac, and dare I say it, Dr. Seuss, spoke to a deeper part of me reaching into and vibrating with a part of me I didn't even know was there or wouldn't allow, the unconscious. On songs like It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding from 1965, he gained full access to this. To quote, Darkness at the break of noon shadows even the silver spoon, the handmade blade, the child's balloon, eclipses both the sun and moon to understand you know too soon. There is no sense in trying. He goes on. Pointed threats they bluff with scorn. Suicide remarks are torn from the fool's gold mouthpiece. The hollow horn plays wasted words, proves to warn that he not busy being born is busy dying. That was Dylan to me. In a world of fixed portraits, his songs were kaleidoscopes, a kind of spoken cubism. There's a stretch from 65 to 67. It contains the albums Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde, three of the greatest albums of all time, done in just two years. These masterworks introduced me to that larger world in here, in me, and that was something very private. But to have someone verbalize that, and by that I mean my rage, my fear, darkness, 
mystery and confusion, my own insanity, that let me feel less alone in the world. And with this private Bob Dylan, here was someone I could look at and say, wow, he went to the other side, and he's come back to report on it, and he's made something of himself. Yeah, but he's done something with these deeper crevices of his soul. Maybe I can too. And it was from there that I began to climb, began to climb into the world, into the world with a certain kind of hesitation and then courage. And then, in my mid-twenties, something changed. As my suicidal impulses receded, I turned on Dylan. I no longer paged random indexes in search of him. I took his poster, the lone decoration on my dorm room wall, down for good. I fell hard for post-rock bands like Tortoise and free jazz dudes like Hamid Drake and Fred Anderson. Dylan was a thing of the past. Critics also piled on, proclaiming him finished. I was always susceptible to their ideas anyhow. If once I idolized him, I now saw only a jester, someone who'd mastered merely the craft of creating a character. What used to be cryptic and thus intriguing about him now felt merely a means by which to keep a distance, personally and artistically, a way to stave off deeper scrutiny. Scrutiny, perhaps, of a body of work that now contained far more that was mediocre and inconsequential than masterful. Was he ever that good? I began to wonder. My wife even told me that someone she knew back in the day had been his mistress. His recorded phone interviews with stalker A.J. Weberman, in which Dylan comes across as a self-indulgent and paranoid speed freak, also further eroded the mythos and my respect. I found myself now giving him my giant fuck you. We get to a point where we look at things and say, wow, I've had this thing, whatever it is, with this person for a really long time now. That becomes a limb, an extension of our being, our history, a reminder of what we chose, what we denied, and what life gave us. You can't just remove it. So there's a personal experience, a personal culture, a mindset that's created and then either held onto or passed along. I have three kids now, and so I think a lot about passing things along. And it's worth noting that for me, there's a reluctance to passing it all along. Even the passed-along variation is not the same as the first singular lived experience. This experience is sacred simply because it has meaning to us individually, and because none of us gets to do it over. It's ours, all the way to the end. The arrogance of every age is captured in the belief that all that we experience, including someone like Dylan, has some grand meaning beyond us and our time. We gloss over our fragility, deny it, and manage too often to focus on the things that don't truly matter. The politics, the materialism, the fashions, the family squabbles. Until it's too late. 
When I listen to Dylan these days, I'm reminded how temporary all of us is, and that includes the works and people we idolize. It's possible that in one generation, most of it gets wiped out, forgotten, replaced. I wish for that not to happen with Bob Dylan, but I realize it might. British psychoanalyst Adam Phillips has said, quote, The wish to be understood may be our most vengeful demand, may be the way we hang on as adults to our grudge against our mothers, the way we never let our mothers off the hook for their not meeting our every need. Wanting to be understood as adults can be our most violent form of nostalgia. Dylan spared me all this. There was no active listener there, tending to my neuroses, my psychoses, no therapist, just a speaker, taking risks, offering up the best and worst shards of himself. And in the process, he saved me from this violence toward others and self. Do I dare say he saved me? To this day, it seems so few really understand him, the Dylan obsessives, as they, we, like to call ourselves, the ones who page indexes for him and always look for more clues, more and more meaning, focus on this unattainable act of understanding him. But in the end, I suppose what matters is he let me understand me, and this could only be achieved if he himself had spent time there. Here are the first lines of his 1980 song, Every Grain of Sand. In the time of my confession, in the hour of my deepest need, when the pool of tears beneath my feet floods every newborn seed, there's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere, toiling in the danger and the morals of despair. Don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake. Like Cain, I now behold this chain of events that I must break. In the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand in every leaf that trembles, in every grain of sand. Hmm. The master's hand in every grain of sand. I think, alas, I understand. For these days, I'm Dimitri Gatsiunas. Special thank you to Paul Weinfield for contributing music to today's episode. Paul's wonderful music and songwriting are available via Spotify or, very likely, wherever you like to download music.